Previously on The Tony Kornheiser Show. I'm just saying that for someone like me, there is a great satisfaction in having convinced yourself you've cooked something. Sure. You know, and so I, I've had a few of these meals were sent to me. And set I set them the all. scene. Are you, are you sharing responsibilities with mom or are you just walking in and out of the kitchen? I think you know me well. Okay. <laughs> Try to imagine that you put on like a Spotify playlist, open a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> the Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. It's great when my son embarrasses me. Does it all the time. I think it's good. I think it's good. I would have embarrassed my dad, but he had no time for me. I have time for my son. Uh, we're guest loaded today. We're going to get to guests right away, but I just wanted to read this from Ben Rosario official marathon coach of the Tony Kornheiser show. Mr. Tony was kind enough to read the email I sent on March 1st in regards to the great guard, Greg Garcia, wearing his hocus in Tony's home. Not long thereafter, Tony read an email from an old friend of mine and fellow little Dusty Lopez. Dusty noted the connective tissue of the show, which is decidedly real. He and I hadn't connected in a long time, and the show elicited our first text exchange in years. Anyway, I tried to send a pair of hocus to Tony, but they were returned. And then they, they're here, Ben, they're here. Thank you. Ben is the executive director of Hoka Naz Elite in Flagstaff, Arizona. I haven't tried them on. I've looked at them in the box for a couple of weeks. I'm looking at them right now in the box. I'm going to try them on this evening. You ready for that zero drop? Oh. I want to see what it's like on my feet. Yeah, I want to see how that feels. Chris Eliza joins us now. We wanted to have Chris on because there have been other people. Apparently, every Republican in South Carolina is running for president, apparently. <laughs> But but Nikki Haley and Senator Scott, they're not they're not on the front page. Ron DeSantis, a two term governor in Florida, a big state, is on the front page. And he declared, do I have this correct? He declared uh, on Twitter in the company of Elon Musk. Do I have that correct? You have that 100 percent correct. So that leads me to this question. Elon Musk. I'm sorry. Uh, he's a polarizing figure in America, is he not? Why would you do that? Well, he's a very polarizing figure, especially since he bought Twitter. But yes. he has become a favorite of the very online right. Okay. Um, and I think that's who DeSantis is trying to court. Look, I, it, it, even before it went so poorly, it didn't make a ton of sense. I think it's really weird to announce for president with the help of someone else. It would be like if I was announcing and, and you were doing the interview, like Chris Eliza with Tony Kornheiser. Like it's kind of a thing that you do by yourself typically. Um, so it was weird to start. I think it's weird to associate yourself with Elon Musk in that you have to kind of own everything he says and does yes. from here on out. Yes. Um, but then it went so badly that, that, that even the choice of doing it with Elon Musk kind of got overshadowed. Can you tell us about Ron DeSantis's public speaking skills, the way sure. he presents himself? Because he's elected twice in a very big state. And yet some people say to me, he appears very awkward when speaking. So I think you have to always think of there's a difference between politicians who are good at retail politics and politicians who are good at more sort of the bigger state TV ad politics. DeSantis is the, is the latter. So Florida is not a state where you're going to meet most of the voters who are going to vote for you, right? The campaign plays out through TV ads. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have a good TV ad maker and you're pretty good on TV, um, that's how voters will get to know you through ads. Unfortunately for DeSantis, the presidential race is not that. 
the presidential races in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, at least to start. And those are states where, <clears throat> excuse me, those are states where voters want to meet you. Um, he has struggled with that, I would say, so far. He is awkward. I wrote that he's a little bit weird. Um, he has kind of a weird laugh. Uh, there's a story going around that Donald Trump has made a big deal out of that he eats pudding with his hands, with his fingers. What? Yes. What? Yes. There's a, there's what? a story that he was on a plane traveling somewhere, and he had one of those Jello pudding cups. Yeah. And he ate it with three fingers, not a spoon. Well, that is weird. I mean, I'm not saying it's not fun, but I don't know that I would do that in public so somebody could see me do that. Yeah, it's it's a weird decision. I mean, again, I just think he's a little bit awkward. I think he's never been on a stage this big before. He's never had scrutiny like this before. Right. And at least to date, it hasn't served him all that well. So let me, you know, how is he going to position himself to the left of Trump, to the right of Trump, or just like Trump? I mean, because he's a legitimate challenger. Where is he going? right of Trump, um, which is pretty remarkable because Trump is, at least in most of the positions he takes, pretty far to the right. But he's going to position himself to the right of Trump. So yesterday was DeSantis' first day as sort of an official candidate. Um, He attacked Trump for for putting Dr. Fauci in a position of power. Uh, He attacked Trump for spending while in office. So I think he's going to attack him from the right. I don't know that that's the smartest thing to do, candidly. Um, I think Trump has a tremendous amount of support among the right. Uh, I don't know that you unseat that support. At the same time, I think it would be dicey to run to Trump's left because I don't know that there's all that many votes over there. I mean, you know, Rudy Giuliani tried to run to the left in the primary. Uh, That didn't work. So, you know, there's not a ton of vote at this point, the Republican Party on the left. So this is interesting, because I read a story in the New York Times either yesterday or two days ago that talked about scaffold votes, socially conscious, fiscal conservative Republicans, which hmm. seemed to me that you would go to the left of Trump if you were looking for that. Well, that certainly is to the left of Trump. Yes. No question. I think DeSantis's problem is I don't know that he could sell a message to the left of Trump. The way that he governed in mm-hmm. Florida, um, remember, he just finished the Florida legislative session. So he got reelected by 20 points in 2022. They just had their legislative session this first five months of 2023. They did things on immigration, on abortion, on I guess you would describe it as wokeness mm-hmm. uh, in in schools on you know books being banned yeah. and that sort of thing that are not issues that he could position himself to the left of Trump on. So I I just don't know that there's a lot of room to Trump's right um, in a race. I don't think Trump is particularly ideological, but I think his supporters are very much gathered on that right hand okay. side of the conservative spectrum. So let me get to the interesting part the part that I think I know a little bit. We get to see these candidates in debates. You got to go to debates. Trump's a killer. He's a killer in debate. It doesn't even matter what he says. It's the way he moves. It's the way he looks at you. It's the way he humiliates you. Trump is great on his feet. He is. Is DeSantis... Everything you just said is 100% right. Yeah. Is DeSantis, is he great on his feet? Because if he isn't, he's off his feet. Trump kills yeah. him. I think the the best case scenario for DeSantis to answer that question is to be determined. 
Um, I think the worst case scenario is he's not great on his feet, and we've sort of already seen that, that he's not great on his feet, um, and Trump is going to eat him alive. I mean, again, I think something you have to remember here is not only is Donald Trump made for these sorts of moments, whether you like him or you hate him, he's good on his feet, he's good on live TV, Um, he understands how TV works and what TV wants. I mean, I I would argue he doesn't say anything in these debates. He just kind of talks over you and insults you. Uh, But it works. Um, DeSantis has never been in a situation like this before. Um, He's never debated multiple candidates, you know, five, six, seven candidates, which is what he will do um, in the first debate, which is in August. Uh, He certainly never had to debate someone like Donald Trump before. And Trump has a unique advantage in that regard, I think. He, He is... Of all the candidates, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, uh, uh, DeSantis, he's the only one who's done all of this before. He debated a million times during the 2016 race. He debated Joe Biden in a general election debate in 2020 and Hillary Clinton in 2016. So he has the experience of having done all this before, and I think that's a huge advantage. Can you explain to me how he is so far ahead when he was just convicted of groping someone and ruining her life? Yep, it's amazing. And, <laughs> and don't don't forget, he's under federal investigation yeah. for the way in which he handled classified documents and state investigation in Georgia for attempting to overturn the election in Georgia in 2020. Um, he said uh, at one point in the 2016 campaign, I could shoot someone in the yeah. middle of Fifth Avenue and no one would leave me. And everyone sort of rolled their eyes and mocked him for it. And I think he was right. Um, I think he understands the appeal and the lure he has over these people. I do think there's a Pied Piper element to it um, that they just follow him. And the more, it's like a conspiracy theory, everything fits into it. So the more things he does that get him in trouble, the more convinced than ever the people who follow him are that he's the victim of a deep state targeting operation. Um, I think he could. I think there is a real possibility in the classified documents case he could go to jail, and I think that will really test whether and how long they're willing to stay with him. Um, because he, you can run for president while in jail. Uh, you can be a former convict and run for president. Amazingly, um, but. I, Everyone else, I would say, that would be a death blow to their candidacy. For Trump, I, I just don't know. Um, it's so many things has have already happened to him that would kill any other candidacy, and yet here he stands. Let me just get you out of here on this, because I thought about this last night. And I have enormous respect for how Donald Trump, in the last go-around, just picked apart everybody. I mean, the first time he won, just uh, people were on stage and he said, you want a president who looks like this? He just, just <laughs> yeah, vile. He's a great bully. He's yeah. a really good bully. Okay. He's really good at it. But I'll tell you this. If he loses once, he's done. If DeSantis beats him once, he's done. It doesn't mean DeSantis will win. But if Trump, there is, if there is the aura of invincibility and if he loses once, he's done, tell me you agree or disagree. I disagree. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you why. In 2016... He lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz. He lost the first vote. And everyone thought, myself included, well, exactly what you just said, Tone, which is, well, okay, now people will wake up. You know, now now that he's lost, he doesn't look invincible anymore. But what did he do? He accused Cruz of cheating. He never acknowledged that he lost. He said that he had actually won the Iowa caucuses. So 
That's the X factor always with Trump, is he's never going to admit he lost. And there's going to be a significant number of people who support him who go along with that no matter what happens. So I'm, I just don't think he's ever going to concede that he lost, even if he winds up losing the nomination. I think he winds up running as a third-party candidate. Chuck Todd and I have talked about this. Wow. What does Donald Trump leaving the 2024 race look like? I struggle to imagine it. Wow. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, my friend. Chris Saliza, boys and girls, who's got a book out. It's Power Players, right? Isn't that the name of the book? Yes. Chris, you still there? He, he was off the phone. Power <laughs> Players. It's about yes. presidents and sports. Yes. It's done very well so far. And go out and buy it. Uh, we will have, is it Jason next? Jason. Jason for When we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This comes to us from Jim Heltz from the band Transitory Symphony, who writes, My band is based in Williston in Hyde Park, Vermont. Released a new EP. She says, I've got your number. The band has been making sounds for 10 years. The band members are Tom Haney on vocals, flute, keyboards, and percussion. And Jim Heltz on guitar, bass, harmonica, and occasional vocals. This is the title track. She says, I've got your number. It's a real upbeat ditty. I love Diddy. I think it's just <laughs> such a great word. It really it's is. the latest track that James and Tom have recorded. Um, and it plays in Jason Locke and Fora. Let me start with the O's, hon. They're for yeah. real. <laughs> right, they're for real. They have the second best record in all of baseball. Three years ago, they were pathetic. Yeah. How, is this real? Is this? Do you think this is real? Yeah. Um... Yes, I, I mean, they're a, a, like a 95-win team since Adley Rutschman was called up May 21st of 2022. And they were really bad a couple of years. You don't really need to go back three years. I mean, you, you they were – only Kansas City and Detroit had fewer wins than the Orioles in the American League on the day that Adley was called up. They were, I believe, 16-24. and 24. So you could go back a little over a calendar year and still find them being a, a pretty marginal baseball operation in terms of um, the major league level. Now the the um, the foundation right ha- had been well in place in terms of establishing this pipeline of guys who were either all you know pretty much ready and just tap them and call them up or, or getting darn close to being um, major league ready, and that's continued to build in a ridiculously robust manner. Um, especially if you want to compare them to the Tigers and the Royals, right? Because that's where they were a calendar year ago. Um, although Detroit's played much better ball the last, th- you know, in May than they did in April. Um, and they're they've become an incredibly athletic uh, baseball team. They have become one of the most patient. Um, Attacks in the league, not that they can't score quickly, but you look at their their team on base percentage, and you look by and large at at 
every individual who contributes offensively on a regular basis, you know, with the exception of like Jorge Mateo, um, they're getting on base at, at a clip that, you know, any team would aspire to. The bullpen was dominant last year. The bullpen's even better this year. They essentially have two of the best closers in Major League Baseball, and Yannier Cano and Felix Batista, um, both of whom are capable of giving you more than three outs. Um, and the starting pitching has, I would say, overachieved. Um, not a lot of household names, not a lot of guys who are going to go into the seventh inning with any regularity, but they keep you in games. They're competitive, um, you know, and and with that bullpen, five, you know, and a third, five and two-thirds, six, um, even four and a third can be more than enough on a lot of nights. To, and they also have a flair for the dramatic. I mean, they've got 19 come-from-behind wins already. Uh, they're one of the best offenses in baseball. Um, they're top three in the American League after the seventh inning in o- OPS and on-base percentage. Um, and, you know, they, they, That's great. They're a hell of an operation right now. So, do, I think they, do I think they could win a short series tone against some of these other American League teams as presently constructed? Multiple times to back up what looks like it's going to be a 90-plus win season? I, I don't know about that. Um, if they add another starting pitcher, then I think we're looking at a, a completely different um, development. Like, I thought they'd make the playoffs. I picked them to make the playoffs. Um, I thought they would continue to be a 90-plus win team, but they also need to now turn this this overflowing pipeline of prospects into a front end of the rotation starter, whether that's Eduardo Rodriguez or whether that's Dylan Cease or whether that's, you know, Burns or Woodruff, one of Milwaukee's top starters, or I really like Jesus Lazardo with the Marlins, who's control, only 25 and controllable for years. They've got to add a horse. Um, and, and then I think you really could be looking at um, go time in terms of being an impactful team in October. As a Washingtonian, I have watched the Angelos family for years. And I thought Peter Angelos was a fine owner. He is not involved in the day-to-day uh, at this point. And I didn't have particular regard for his sons because I thought that Peter Angelos made all the decisions. Somebody's got to get the credit for this. Somebody hired the people who did yeah. this. Who hired the people? John Angelos. Right. Okay. It's John Angelos. Yeah, and, you got to give him Michael credit. Elias. I mean that. You know, again, I'll point around baseball. It it doesn't work this way. Like the idea that you just get a couple, you know, first round, you know, one one picks and you're good. No. No. <laughs> no. It's 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 not it's not a proven thing. It's not. Linear again. We've seen Detroit and Kansas City fire GMs and fire managers because the rebuild didn't work. We've seen the Pirates perpetually rebuild. Now maybe they're coming out of it. They also play in the worst division in baseball. The Orioles play in the, in the best. best. Um, you know, you, it, it's hardly it's 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 hardly automatic. You know, Texas. They look like they've come around now. Once they threw five hundred million dollars at it, and once you know they binged and purged executives because the original way, you know, the original round of the rebuild, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't bearing the fruit that they thought it would. Um, no, I, I mean, look, he could have hired a lot of different people for this job and talked to a lot of different people, and you know, it's it's been. I, I don't know what. Mike Elias hasn't really done again, other than what does he do? What does he do at the major league level? He's done an amazing job with waiver claims and lesser trades like Trey Mancini. 
can he execute a blockbuster, you know, three to five prospects for a player or two trade at the major league level that puts them over the top? He's done anything else you could have won in spades over and over and I, over I've again. never heard of him. I never heard of the manager. These people have to get credit. Well, yes, last year was Brandon manager. Hyde's done a tremendous job. And that's the other thing, too. A lot of times you get a guy in here and you say, well, we might eventually get to 500 with him, but when we get close to that, we got to get the next guy to put us over the top. And no, that, I mean, Brandon Hyde, I mean, I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. I no. mean, some people thought he was the, you know, the manager of the year a year ago. I did. Um, yeah. It, it's, no, this is not sleight of hand. This is not like, you know. Well, this is it, what the Astros did. Eight and ten years ago. And they've now reached a point where if you look at their 40-man roster, because we do these exercises on the radio four hours a day, it's like, okay, everybody wants like Jordan Westberg to be called up, and that would be great. I'd love this. Jordan Westberg has mastered AAA. Okay, who are you DFAing? Like, yeah. Who are you getting rid of to get him here? Because you're going to have to take somebody off the 40-man roster who another team is going to want pretty much instantaneously, you know, um, even some of the guys who are at AAA who are already on the 40-man roster, there's not a whole lot of them that you'd want to just give away. Because- well, let, let me ask the, the – the, the, you're giving me nuts and bolts, and I appreciate that, and I think that the rebuild has been remarkable. And I do think that the owner and the general manager deserve a lot of credit, and the owner rarely gets any credit at all in baseball. Correct. But it's a business. Are the fans back? Are the fans back? Well, the last couple of series, you know, they, they have been. It's it's probably not exactly, you know, what ownership would want. If you were scripting a perfect world um, and you were scripting what you thought ideal attendance would be, they moved uh, weekday starts to 6.30 during, while school was in session. I think it probably helped them a little bit on the margins. The, the Saturday and Sunday crowds have been great. The $10 bleacher seats um, during weekdays have been great. That Those four, four, four or five sections out in right center through center field are always packed. Um, it's a little different now, too, Tone, with not playing the AL East as much. Like, yeah. that cuts both ways. It's great in the standings, but you're not, you know, you don't have Boston and New York and, you know, um, you know, Toronto fans here all the time. So it's, it's a little hit or miss in terms of some of the rivalries. But the last few weekends, the last few series have been great. They also just recently had a 10-game road trip. So, you know, they haven't been at – and then a six-game road trip. So they haven't been at home as much. But they're home quite a bit here through June. Um, it's certainly up from where it was before. The buzz in the city is palpable. Um, again, the weekends, you're talking 28, you know, 25, 20-some thousand people. I think that will continue to they grow. They used to get eight. Six and eight. Yeah, and, and they've yeah. also, like, you know, they're doing some interesting stuff. Like, I don't know if you've seen this birdbath deal out in Section 86, but um, they've got, you know, the, the team does this celebration with, like, sprinklers and spinning yeah. water. It's, it's all, we don't have enough time to go into all that. But water, water has become a big part of their celebrations. So now in Section 86, they got a dude with, like, a super soaker sport, you know, gun, and you could go out there and get soaked during the game every time somebody hits a double or a home run. And that section is sold out for several series to come. So, no, it is certainly trending in a positive Good. direction. And as the Good. weather turns, um, yeah, and as they keep this up, because they're not going to go away. It's always been a good franchise. It's always been a good ballpark, whatever ballpark they were in. And so I'm um, always had great colors. And Jim Palmer's still doing TV. It makes me very happy. Let me, let me get you out of here on one completely different thing. Uh, the kickoff in the NFL. Yeah. It's over, isn't it? 
it's it's yes, it's not quite extinct yet. Um, but it's it's a pterodactyl on its last legs. I guess pterodactyls probably have legs, right? I'm not so good with my dinosaurs. Possibly. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe we've I got. Should like ask a, Walker and Henry, a, but I think it's like a half legs. a pterodactyl leg and like yeah. one scrawny arm still yeah. left, but the rest of it is 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 eroding. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I I guess I get it. It's just it's just kind of you know so disingenuous to be basking in the glow of how uh, holistic we are and how much we care about our players at the same time they're jerking the schedule around right and and you know they're adding games and adding playoff games and adding games international and now you can go play internationally and guess what they're not even guaranteed that you get to come home and have an off week like and some of you dudes you're gonna be playing twice on thursdays this year but oh yeah it's all about player health and safety but this is for them i think at the ownership level some easy arithmetic, like, okay, you continue to show us concussion data that leads yeah. us to believe that kickoffs are some of the more violent incidents in our sport. How many kickoffs really result in something that people would stay tuned to the TV for, or are they already kind of using that for a potty break? We've already taken the explosion in the kickoffs away pretty much from our previous rules, so now let's just continue to mitigate it, and then, yes, we'll eventually eliminate it completely. And then when we have, you know, CBA negotiations again in seven years, we can talk about how much, you know, we've already, we continue to do for players. At the same time, we continue to play games on artificial surfaces where they're getting maimed in their limbs and their ACLs and their Achilles, but God forbid we should mandate grass. Like, you know, wow, we'd have to spend more money to actually keep our fields in place. Well, we can't do that. Oh, but player health and safety trumps all. I can't top that. I'm not going to even try. <laughs> Plug your podcast for us or your radio show. Rather. Uh, if you are in the area, you can catch us today on Friday down at Pickles by Camden Yards uh, from 2 to 6 for inside access. Uh, if you happen to be in the Aberdeen area on Sunday, you will catch me and my family at the Aberdeen Ironbirds game where Jackson Holiday, the soon-to-be number one prospect in baseball, is tearing things up. Uh, we'll be back at Pickles on Tuesday. We'll be doing the show from Bowie uh, on Wednesday. And you can listen to us uh, on the Odyssey app at any time. You can listen to us uh, streaming on 105.7 The Fan uh, as well. and Or just listen to us at 105.7 uh, in Baltimore. And again, 2 to 6. Um, it's not just Orioles talk, but it's a lot of Orioles talk. These days, Horn, let's go, O's. Come on, Horn, let's get some daddy bows and go see them kids play. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> you got it, guys. Jason Luck and Fora, boys and girls. Take a break. Ann Horn today with a summer movie preview. When we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is sent to us by our friend Grant McGuire from Huntington, West Virginia, who writes, My Phoenix daughter-in-law, Alyssa Dawson, performs under the name River Iris. She just released this new single called Passenger Seat. My music tastes are pretty much stuck in the 60s. But Alyssa has patiently educated me to appreciate current pop music. This again is called Passenger Seat by River Iris. Michael, if 
people like River Iris or their fathers-in-law um, want to send us the music, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at TonyCornizerShow.com. And with this weekend being the unofficial start to summer, officially performance season, so go check out JohnnyO.com. We still have TK5 active. Even before. though even though he got another RBI last night, yeah. he's up to 14. Ooh. Dominic Smith. Meaningless singles, but yeah. <laughs> Just a little single. Yeah. River Iris. Very, very nice. Very lovely. Plays in Ann Hornaday. We always talk to Ann at the beginning of summer for the summer music, uh, summer film schedule. Even though I don't watch films, everybody else watches films, and so we need Ann to do this. Before we get started, did you have did you have a connective tissue story you wanted to tell us? Well, I just want to start by sending a shout out to my friend, my new friend Brian, who I met in Northampton, Massachusetts, last weekend at the wonderful Caminito Steakhouse. I had a fantastic dinner there. Um, I know people are reuning up there this weekend, I have a feeling, so I would you know, urge everyone to go over and say hi to Brian. Tell him I said hello. He's a great guy, and he's a, he's a listener, and I hope he's listening today, and we just want to say hello. That's very nice. Now, I'm going to yeah, get to movies. Yeah. I'm going to get to movies. Okay. The first movie we're going to talk about is a movie with Julia Louis-Dreyfus called You Hurt oh. My Feelings. I have a one sentence, you know, description of what this movie is, but, and I'm sure you love the movie. My first question is Julia Louis Dreyfus is about as small screen as you can get. She's fabulous, fabulous on the small screen. Does she translate to something larger? Oh my goodness, yes. Really? Oh, and this is, you know, Tony, this is, this is a movie. It's, it's written and directed by Nicole Holof Center who should be as instantly recognizable as Woody Allen or Judd Apatow. Wow. You know, when you say their name, you know exactly what kind of movie you're going to get, right? And, and she should be up there in that pantheon because she has consistently made these very funny, very observant movies about just sort of human behavior, you know, and human foibles. Um, she usually, through her career, she was usually working with Katherine Keener, who's wonderful, and then a few years ago, um, she she cast Julia Louis Dreyfus in a movie called Enough Said, which turned out to be one of, if not the, then at least one of the last uh, movies that James Gandolfini made. Yeah, um, and it was just fabulous. And she she just she traffics, like I said, in that kind of observant, wry comedy of just the way people behave. And in this case, it's about a marriage that starts to come apart when when Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character catches her husband out in a white lie, you know, that he's been telling her kind of to protect her ego. But then when you hear the real, you know, when you hear what he really thinks, it just kind of, it just undermines the entire, you know, um, scaffolding of the marriage. It's funny. It's true. You know, it gets to these truths of human experience. I just, and again, it's that kind of movie that, I feel like you and I love to go out to see, and a lot of our listeners love to go out and see, and we're afraid they, meaning Hollywood, are going to start stop making them. And, right, um, right. So, but she, no, she's fantastic. She is so okay. funny. Her timing is fantastic. And it's very much in that vein of Veep and Seinfeld in terms of just the small little nuances. Veep, I mean, Seinfeld, everybody understands. Yeah. Everybody knows how good she is. Veep. She's so good. She's so vile. It's just she's so good in that. Yeah. She really. She's, right. 
She's, she really is. She's I mean, so, good. so e- She makes it look so easy that it's easy to take her for granted. But it really, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it, the, she. I mean, I do use the word genius. It's just like her timing, and those little gestures, those little facial tics and gestures are that just it's ex- terrific. You know, express volumes. It's amazing. All right, it's another great. movie. There's yeah. another Indiana Jones movie. Oh gosh. Harrison Ford is 75 years old if he's a day. How does he do these movies? How's this happening? Well, you know, in this case, part of why he's, he, how he does this movie is de-aging. And, you know, the, te- the de-aging technology, thing, you know, with things like AI and machine learning and all that stuff, things I don't understand, they are just doing, it is now is so very fair? seamless. Is that fair mm-hmm. to do that? Well, fair, you know, I mean, they've been, when you think of... You know, cinema has always been a little bit the art of deception and the art right. of seamless deception. And I think it's also about audience expectations and, and meeting those where they are. And so I guess all, you know, fair is fair is fair. I mean, I, I just remember, you know, the days of Forrest Gump and the days of even the Irishman, you know, when they de-aged Robert De Niro and, you know, Joe Pesci, and that was kind of weird, and people were, some people accepted it and some people didn't. Now we're beyond that. It's just, it just is. Um, now, I haven't seen the new Indiana Jones, and so um, we'll see. You know, I mean, I want to give everything the benefit of the doubt. I'm, right. I'm a little bit, I really am a little bit exhausted by these, God, these con- this constant barrage of reboots and retools and prequels and like let's just take one more bite of that apple you know it's like maybe maybe there's a there's a grace to being able to say goodbye you know well so that leads me to the next thing because there's another mission impossible movie true and i will say this about the mission impossible movies and i'll make the analogy to the fast and furious movies now i'm not Mm. a fast and furious guy right but i'll bet they're great i'll bet it's the same movie every time and i'll bet it's great because the mission impossible movies are great they're great they are. That's the one except, you know, it's like, I have to say, I, I kind of got off the James Bond train a while ago. I was yeah. not, I was not a huge fan of the Daniel Craig era. I just, uh, nothing against him. I just, it didn't engage me. I think there were a couple of bad movies in there. Meanwhile, over at Mission Impossible, Great. that was consistent. Like they were just delivering every time. They know, you know, I think, and I do, I do attribute this to Tom Cruise. He knows that property. He knows himself. He knows um, the audience. He knows the values that the audience in the deliverables, frankly, that is, are expected of him. And he does it. And he, he, and he's found, you know, for a long time he worked with Robert Town, who's, uh, you know, the, the great auteur, you know, the great writer of Chinatown and the yeah. great script doctor in Hollywood. <clears throat> and you know he he goes to the very very top to make sure that these things are good, and it does start with the script. And I and I really respect him for that. Now he's working with Chris McQuarrie, who wrote The Usual Suspects, and you know so he's he doesn't mess around. And and I I just think his standards are really high. Think and, and it shows. I think these movies have been consistently excellent. They are. They're I, you know. I can't tell one from the other, but no. I would go, I'd go to see them. You know, I, I yeah. would go to see they're, them. They're really good. They're there's, just very good. They're, there's they, a movie they, they, apparently yeah. called Asteroid City that Tom Hanks is in. Mm. What is that? Okay, this is the new Wes Anderson. Right. So when you say Wes Anderson now, you kind of know what you're going to get. You're going to get that little candy box aesthetic, very tightly controlled, 
everything very symmetrical, very visually stunning, hyper-designed, um, hyper, hyper care, you know, hyper-precise. Um, in this case, you know, it's about kind of, it's set in the American mid-century in the Southwest during the space race and the, the kind of fascination with, with outer space. Um, this beautiful desaturated Kodachrome palette. I have, you know, all, I, so in other words, it's going to be visually stunning. What I'm not, what I'm constantly looking for from him and I haven't gotten lately is substance. I just, yeah. I don't know that there are any ideas. Like he did his last movie, The French Dispatch, was sort of an ode to The New Yorker, which is right in my wheelhouse, you know, it's sort of like I'm there, you know. Yeah. And it just didn't really have anything to say. You know, it was it was a lot of very clever very pretty little set pieces that just did not amount to anything that, you know, I, I just feel like he, I wish there were, again, I wish there were the care in that writing as, as there are, as there is in the, in the visual kind of, um, the fetish of it all. Okay. But we'll see. Okay. Keep an open mind. Um, I've been told that the Martin Scorsese movie, and I didn't know he made movies anymore. Mm. I've been told that it got a nine minute standing ovation at Cannes. Nine minute standing ovation. What is that about? Well, that's about Cannes. I don't want to be cynical, and I, you know, again, I haven't, I did not go to Cannes this year, so right. I'm, I'm reserving. But you know, I, I do think people get swept up in the moment, and Cannes, if, if Cannes is about anything, it's about worshiping auteurs, and yes. Scorsese is the auteur of the auteur. So I do take it with a grain. Okay. And one of the reasons, you know, like even though it's fun and it's fun to be in the swirl and it's fun to see things early, I do think even critics can get swept up in that, and and I. I'm just a little bit wary of it, and I'd rather, you know, let's let's all calm down, <laughs> and we can, you know, we can yeah. see the movie, you know, when it's not quite uh, so hyped up. <laughs> all right, there's one other movie I want to talk about and ask yes. you about. It's a movie about. It's called uh, Oppenheimer, I guess. Yes. In the manner of J. Robert Oppenheimer, and he was the guy who, he is the father of the atomic bomb. Um, I wonder. And I don't know how this works. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I don't know how this works. In the period of time when he was charged with doing this, there was an absolute reason to do it, to end a war. It was a terrible thing that happened. You know, you, you cannot defend the destruction and the human death that happened as a result of ushering in the atomic bomb. But the people who put that together, and I assume him himself as a scientist... Swallow hard and say, we got to end this thing. And if this is the only way to do it, we're going to save lives in terms of the great number. That's got to be, that's got to be at the heart of any movie about him, right? I would, I would, ab I mean, I think not only just to be intellectually honest, but to be narratively interesting, right? I mean, you yeah. want ambiguity and yeah. you want tension. Yeah. And I, I remember seeing, I mean, he, you know, he was, he was such an eccentric guy, you know, and I think he even acknowledged those, um, those, those kind of that ambivalence. Um, so yes, of course, I think it should be. I mean, this is a Christopher Nolan movie, which is almost always interesting, <laughs> with Killian Murphy as as Oppenheimer, which I think is kind of a great piece of casting. It's based on the Kai Bird book, and Kai is no slouch, you know. I mean, it's a serious book, um, so I think the source material really um is is encouraging in this that it, my only hesitation is with all things nolan is his sound mixes it's like i hope we can understand what the people are saying up on the screen because he does not remit this is a little 
just my little pet peeve, but uh-huh. he tends not to remix his movies. So sometimes you, I have a really hard time discerning the audio, you know, the dialogue and um, within the sound mix. So I just really, really hope that we can hear it. <laughs> My feeling about this is that you are looking back 70 and 80 years. Mm-hmm. And if it feels to me, if I go to see it, and if it feels to me like a polemic, I'm going to be very upset. If it feels to me like someone is, is looking backwards from now, and making judgments from now, I'm going to be very upset. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, I guess the historians would call that presentism. Um, and I just, again, if they're working from this book, and I should note that Kai Bird co-wrote the book with Martin Sherwin, if they're going, you know, I just think if it's true to the, to the book, right. um, and, and no one... I don't know. He just doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to try to score political points. I, that's never been where he comes from. I just, you know, I don't, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm surprised. just saying it'd be real easy. Be real easy to be real woke about oh, something that happened that, you know what I mean? That would, I do. Would, I think I do. I, I think me. woke is over you. And, and I guess I'm not going to use the word woke because that can mean anything to anybody. But I just, Nolan as a, as a, as a filmmaker just does not strike me as that is coming from that perspective okay. you know good I, I anxiously await reviews on i do that. too it's really it's really high it's very yeah. it's like the highest on my want to see list yeah. right now thanks ann always a pleasure and hornaday boys and girls we will come back with email and jingle i'm tony kornheiser you're listening to the tony kornheiser show here comes tony's mailbag got your emails factors and your notes here comes Tony's mailbag, gonna read some for all you folks. That was Brian Adler of Alcoa, Tennessee, right? That's very nice. We didn't hear it in real time because we're having computer issues. But you're going to hear it. You've just heard it. <laughs> and quite, I'm sure it's great. It's lovely. You know, you want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you will be thrilled. I'm sure all of you knew this was coming. The song that we're going to do today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, when I was a little girl, I had a rag doll. The only doll I've ever owned. Now, I love you just the way I love that rag doll, but only now my love has grown. And it gets stronger, baby, in every way. And it gets deeper. And let me say that it gets higher day by day. That is river deep, mountain high. That's the greatest Tina Turner vocal <laughs> of all time. And she had a thousand great yeah. vocals. And that's the number one, river deep, mountain high. The guys who were involved in that, not great. Not great people. <laughs> right. yeah, that's very true. Not great people. Thanks to our guests today, Chris Saliza, Jason LaConfora, Ann Hornaday. Thanks to today's sponsors, Simply Safe and Rocket Money. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Let's do some mailbag things here. Oh, first of all, before we get to that, uh, I need to talk about Hot Pink Hangover right here. I uh, got this message from Jacob Lockhart at Flagstaff High School in Arizona. He's a little hottie. Okay. The hot pink hangover oh. people are called hotties. <laughs> right. The people who listen to this show are called little, so you put them together. <laughs> and he writes, you did it. Hot pink hangover is getting back together, and they give you the credit. A hearty little cheesery. Hearty la cheesery from a little hottie from Flagstaff, Arizona. And apparently this was released by hot pink hangover. Is it too soon to get the band back together for another romp? We don't think so. Strap into the rocket ship, hotties. 
On August 5th, 2023, we're going to paint the town pink once again. Get your tickets for an epic night of laser lights, neon wigs, and all your favorite hot pink hangover songs. Can't board for takeoff? No problem. Watch the live stream from your own control center. How did this come to be, you ask? You can thank the fans of the famous sports talk show host, Tony Kornheiser, known as Littles. We have long been connected to this community through Tony's podcast, where we have received an embarrassment of spins. Tony's podcast is single-handedly responsible for the vast majority of our non-Midwest enthusiasts. We were contacted by Little Hottie Bob to host a Minneapolis chapter event for their annual National Summer of Littles event. Bob, we said, what the hell? Should we just do a show? The rest is history. Huge thanks to the Tony Kornheiser Littles for the massive support throughout our performing years and for bringing us together for this reunion event. Let's do this, Hottie. It's really lovely. Read that mailbag. <laughs> yeah, read that mailbag, Tony. All right. I'm blushing once again. Let's get to something important. Don Gray, DG, not that DG. Right. Signing from Okatee, South Carolina, not Bluffton, South Carolina. The 29909. Yeah. And he writes, Old Field is indeed in Okatee. Michael's yeah. holiday address. Yeah. We know. We know. You're familiar with it's it. It's indeed yes. in Okatee, but the post office often changes their online to Bluffton. I didn't know you and Michael had been here. Do you listen to this show? What, the New River Crossing Publix? Yeah, it's in my app. Yeah. Thought you might know Bluffton, but not Okatee. Sorry. Eric did fill me in. Invitation still stands. By the way, I still have the Wingfoot poker chip you gave me in chatter. And my son Adam says hello. He treated you for a nosebleed in the Sibley ER. I remember that. Oh. I had to go after that. I had to get cauterization because my nose was bleeding. It's about four years ago, just bleeding all the time. And, and I had to. So that's wonderful. But yes, Don Gray. We are not only familiar with Old Field. Michael, you played it 50 times. Uh, 50 times in the last couple of years. Now, let's uh, let's de- this DG, let's see where your flag ends up on the July 4th tournament. <laughs> see if you can get past 15 or 16. Yeah. From uh, David in Herkimer, New York. Settle in and enjoy the one and only way to regionally divide the state of New York as told by a Herkimer native. First and foremost, central New York is the land flanking the Erie Canal that is bound to the east by Schenectady and to the west by Syracuse. Proceeding north, you will enter America's best state park. You're now in the Adirondacks, bounded by the Tug Hill Plateau and the Hudson River, which originates as a small stream at the feet of the Adirondack High Peaks. Have you reached the northern terminus of the Adirondacks? Great. This is northern New York, which proceeds to our border with the Great White North. The capital region encompasses Albany, Saratoga Springs, and Schenectady. Western New York stretches from Syracuse to Buffalo. Any share of Lake Ontario's shoreline will get you categorized here. Moving back east to the rolling hills of New York wine country, you'll find yourself in the Finger Lakes region with a southern terminus of Elmira. Not Elvira, Elmira. Heading south of the Mohawk Valley and east of the Finger Lakes stretching stretching all the way to Binghamton is the southern tier, with the Catskills region to the east, the lesser of the two massive state parks. And finally, we have come to the land south of Poughkeepsie, the land we here in central New York call the city a name that forces a cold shudder and unsettling of the nerves. I doubt this one will make it out of the mailbag. I doubt even Mr. Tony himself would be able to identify all the regions described herein, but I'll pass along the adre- geographical lesson in the name of education anyway. P.S. Interstate 90, or the throughway, it is actually, as it's known locally, has just finished removal of all manned toll booths in lieu of easy pass automatic tolling. I think I hear the late James Kahn applauding from the great beyond. <laughs> we have spent a lot of time on the absolute geography of upstate New York, and we're not done. Here's Bill Matfield from Fort Mill, South Carolina. Columbia County? That's crazy. Has Brian from Franklin, Massachusetts ever driven up the Palisades from Fort Lee to West Point? It's the Tappan Zee Bridge. That's where upstate starts. Yes! 
yes. You can't make that drive and not be amazed that you could be lost in the woods, but be less than an hour's drive from the busy, one of the biggest, busiest cities in the world. Because my knowledge of New York comes from only four years living at West Point as a child, I decided to pose the question to fellow New York Giants fans I hang out with in Charlotte. One guy said, any place not Long Island. Well, that's what we say on Long Island. It's upstate. And produced a map to prove his point. It was a pretty compelling argument. Another person said, where Army plays. That was the farthest north that any of the 20 or so people in our little club said. Everyone else said some form of Tappan Zee Bridge. Some people would name the bridge specifically or would say West Nyack or Rockland County where the bridge was located. So there, the definitive answer endorsed by 20 people who grew up in New York from Bill Matfield in Fort Mill, South Carolina. Okay, from Sam Angel. Sam Angel now in Silver Spring. Um, and he says, that's it. That's the email. This is the famous New York cover, the New Yorker cover, <laughs> yep. where at the end of the Hudson River, it ju- it's just the rest of the world. <laughs> right. Pacific Ocean, right. Nebraska, Canada, Utah. Yeah, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. More. Matthew Johnson of Greensboro, North Carolina, but originally from New Rochelle, New York. This is Matthew Johnson, the official poet of the Tony Kornheiser Show. I'm writing to follow up on the ongoing debate about upstate New York's boundary. Once I was in the checkout line at a Walgreens in Greensboro, North Carolina, and the attendant heard my accent. I'd moved around since, but I told her I was originally from New Rochelle, and she replied, ah, upstate. She informed me that she was originally from Long Island. Yes, I had parenthetically. Although I concede that it's the Tappan Zee Bridge and up, I do that because I went to school in Binghamton. Had I never left Long Island, I would have said, when you leave Long Island, it's (laughs) upstate. (laughs) I was truly shocked. I'd never heard or associated Westchester County with upstate, the land of Binghamton, Blizzard's Bayheim, and Bronze Baseball Bus. Yes, there are official names like the Southern Tier and the Finger Lakes, but I was taught New York was broken down into the city and its boroughs, Long Island, downstate, and then upstate. That's what I always thought. I I did. Um, From Steve Markovich in Billings, Montana. My ears perked up at your brief mention of Michael Ray, Michael Ray Richardson, and his The Ship Be Sinking, quote on the Wednesday pod. As University of Montana alum, I was lucky enough to watch Michael Ray during my freshman year. I enjoy hearing this reference and think of the full exchange with the reporter, which is not often mentioned. Uh, Michael Ray, The Ship Be Sinking, reporter, how long can it go? Michael Ray, the sky's the limit. <laughs> Yogi Berra would be proud. Yes, it's just wonderful. Um, CG of Franklin, Wisconsin. In last night's preview of Survivor 45, I could have sworn I saw a snippet of an interview of Kim Mulkey as one of the upcoming contestants. If so, are you taking the field or Miss Kim? I can't believe Kim Mulkey would be on no. Survivor. I can't believe that. Um, should we do this? From Peter Jennings, not that Peter Jennings. Wake won its first ever Women's National Golf Championship Wednesday night. Great stuff. Wake men have won a number of times with the Arnold Palmer team. Remember your open invitation to come and play Old Town. Wake Golf's home course in Sedgefield. We'll arrange tour of Wake Golf facilities and national championship bling forthcoming. My guess is these national championship players can help you with your bunker play. Need to wait until fall as, as OTC, Old Town, is putting in new greens. Isn't that nice? We need to keep that. Yes. One other thing from Joe Pearson, who writes us often from Indianapolis. When Michael used the phrase, owl on a trowel, all my brain could hear was foul owl on the prowl. The song The Late Night Cook plays at the diner in In the Heat of the Night. I remember The Heat of the Night, and that cook is a weird-looking guy. What I subsequently learned was that that song was originally supposed to be Little Red Riding Hood by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, but the producers couldn't get the rights. So Quincy Jones, yes, that Quincy Jones, wrote a sound-alike song with lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who wrote the lyrics to The Way We Were. So there's that. Warren Oates is still waiting for that wedge of pie. 
if you haven't seen In the Heat of the Night, you have missed a great movie. Rod Steiger, Sidney Poitier. This is one of the all-time great movies. He plays Virgil Tibbs, Sidney Poitier. It's great. Sensational. If you're out in your bike time, everyone is always do wear white. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I met a girl I would like to ask out. She says, I've got your number. Now, I don't know what she's talking about. She says, I've got your number. Oh, why? She won't call. Oh, why? She won't call. Oh, why? She won't call on me. I asked her friends what she's thinking about. They say she's got your number. Should I call her and ask her out? They say she's got your number. Oh, why? She won't call, oh, why? She won't call, oh, why? She won't call me. You are- 
Stealing the show. <laughs> 